broadband internet service providers in real simple syndication are proud to bring you Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. That over there is Carlin. And that is Jordan. And today we are going to be discussing one of Carlin's selections, a 2010 remake of an older classic Japanese movie. 13 Assassins. 13 Assassins. You were assassinating the title. I was. I was. It's it we you know what for this episode we should call it Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie morning mm-hmm. instead of most excellent movie night because uh, this is I think I I know we said previously a few episodes ago that it was the earliest we had ever recorded. This I, is now the earliest. I, this is now the earliest. <laughs> Um, it just keeps creeping up and yeah. up and up. Sooner or later, it's actually going to swing around to movie night, but that's only going to be <laughs> once a week. <laughs> yeah. So, like, half the month, it's it's movie night, and half it's movie morning. Right. But that's that's not a big deal. 13 Assassins. Uh, this was one that you selected. You've mentioned this director several times before as a, someone that you consider to be highly influential in the world of Japanese filmmaking. Takashi Miike. Yes, he is one who um, I really latched on to when I started listening, or listening, when I started watching Asian film. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a lot of popular films coming out of Japan. Uh, and I, I believe, as I've said on one of the previous podcasts, he pumps films out pretty much. So usually he's doing about seven, directing about seven films per year. And I took a look at his uh, directing credits on Internet Movie Database, and he has 93 directing credits thus far, which I can't even fathom. Like, I've done some directing before, like very, very short stuff, never feature length. Right. And I can't even imagine doing one feature length film let alone 93 feature-length films. I, I'm pretty much convinced that Mike is a workaholic. Yes, he truly is. But, of, of course, j- the Japanese culture favors employment highly more than even Western culture does. They're all very driven. If you're not working 80-hour jobs, then you're slacking in, in Japanese terms. So. Right. So he's just keeping up with the times. But he's directed a lot of cool movies. Um, one that I both of us have seen, and that's... Pretty darn awesome, in my opinion, is Tsukiyaki Western Django. Yes, that that's a fun film. Uh, it's like samurai western mix. Yeah, it's kind of like he took some feudal Japanese influences and then worked it into the the Hatfields and the McCoys. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Um, and it's it's a lot of fun, and it, it's also great because. It's a movie that's, the dialogue is English, but none of the actors natively speak English. And I don't think any of them actually speak English at all. So yeah. it's all phonetically written out. Except Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino has a small part. It has a small cameo as um, the narrator, and that's a good one. Another one, uh, and I think you've mentioned this one before, Shinjuku Triad Society. Yes, Shinjuku Triad Society. That's a really good one by him. He does a lot. I mean, since he does a lot of films, there are plenty that are really good. Yeah. Uh, I have said before, there are some pretty bad ones. Um, Like Family. One called Family is not so good. Didn't he also... He's done some kids' films as well. Uh, He did one called The Great Yakai War, which is supposed to be a kid-related film. I haven't seen it yet, but I hear it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. And didn't he also do one called Ninja Kids? He could have. That sounds accurate. Uh, he, I do know that two other ones that he did was City of Lost Souls. Haven't seen it, but I hear it's good. Yeah. And Ichi the Killer. Oh, Ichi the Killer. That, Ichi the Killer was my first initiation into watching extremely, extremely screwed up films. 
as far as the brutality and the gore. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend, shout out to John Albrecht, had um, lent it to me, and he said, you want to see a really messed up film? He's like, it's a good film, but it's really messed up. He's like, here, check this out. And he said, but just so you know, wait until it's late at night mm-hmm. and it's just you because if anyone like walks in and you're watching this, it might be kind of awkward because it's really screwed up. That might be one to watch like on the um, on the like the Kindle Fire with the headphones in and everything yeah. like that. In a corner so no yeah. one can see. Yeah, right, right. Or like locked away in your bedroom or something like that. Um, the the film this it has a huge cast because of course the title is Thirteen Assassins, so there's thirteen of them. Uh, so we're not going to hit on all of them, but a few that I wanted to mention um, included Koji Yashuko as um, the leader of the assassin group, uh, Shimada Shinzeman. I'm really sorry. I'm totally killing these today. He's, Shimada, tr- he's trying. Shimada Shinzeman. I typically can pronounce Japanese names without too much of a problem, but maybe just reading it. Um, he was he was actually in a couple of movies that um, Western audiences might have seen. He was in Memo- Memoirs of a Geisha. Okay. Um, and he was also in Babel. Okay. Uh, and yeah. Babel was actually pretty decent. Um, I really liked that movie. It was interesting to see how all... Because like, it was a movie that had like three plot lines going all at once and you, you're not sure how they tie together until the very end so that's really cool right there um and then there was also Hiroki Matsukata as Karanaja Sahita and he was in, he's been around for a long time um uh he was in the Shogun Samurai back in 1978 mm. um he's also done Four Days of Blood and Snow and A Bitter Coffee Life hmm. um so those are some interesting titles, uh, and then also another one that I whose name stuck out for me was uh, Takeyuki Yamada, and he was in uh, the time I said hi to my boyfriend, <laughs> which is a great title. That is odd. Uh huh. And he he was also in the Floating Castle and the Devil's Path. So mm-hmm. a lot of interesting movie titles there and uh, stuff to keep an eye out for if you enjoy any of the acting in this particular film. And like Jordan said, this was. 13 Assassins is a 2010 film. It is a remake of a 1963 film. And the person who wrote the original script was Kaneo Ikigami. Uh-huh. Um, good script, in my opinion. It's solid. It's a solid film. Um, when Jordan came over to start recording, we started immediately. This is what we do. We start talking about the films before we get on the podcast to start talking about the films. Well, it's because we're so excited about them. Yeah, exactly. We get excited. And then there's always this point where we're like, well, wait, hold on on to that. We'll talk about it on the podcast. Uh, But one of the things that we talked about was how I said that I feel like this film was a little cookie cutter Mm -hmm. as far as samurai films go. uh, Because there's been a lot in the same vein. I mean, you could even argue that... um, uh, Seven Samurai is kind of similar. Yeah. Uh, and there are a lot of samurai films that are similar to 13 Assassins. So it's nothing new, but at the same time, if it's a remake of a 1963 film, it's much older, so that was back when it was a little fresher. Right. And also, also it was a, like the 50s and 60s, it's amazing how quickly Japan began developing its own film industry. Um, and, you know, films like Rashomon, uh, the original title of this was um, Jusan Nin no Shikaku. Uh, so, f- like, that they were able to establish films 
that were that developed in their storytelling techniques and also the fact that they were able to come up with their own genres like the samurai movie so quickly um and they they took filmmaking and they made it their own and con considering how long it took the japan to actually modernize that's a very impressive feat in my opinion um yeah, and it was actually, the original film was directed by um, Eiichi Kudo uh, back in 1963, and it was a black and white one. Mm. So, um, that's pretty cool. Um, and there was a, a screenplay writer on for, for 13 Assassins. Mm -hmm. His name was Daisuke Tengan. Mm -hmm. um, he also wrote two other films that were directed by Takashi Miike. Uh, one was called Audition which is a very infamous film of Mike's. If no one out there has seen it, I'm not going to tell you anything about it. Just watch it, and by the end of the film, you will understand why I told you to watch it. It's, it's very interesting, and it's pretty much the last 15 to 20 minutes is what the film is really all about. So just watch it, and then send us an email and let us know what you thought. Um, it, it's a surprise. Yeah, and once again, our email is mostexcellentmovienight at gmail .com. We've actually been getting a lot of traffic to our um, to our through the the suggestion form on the website. Nice. Um, so we've been g getting a lot of movie suggestions and everything through there. So we're going to start incorporating that those into our already pretty full stable of selections <laughs> that people yeah, have sent us. So. Uh, but in addition to uh, Daisuke Tengon having written Audition, he also wrote Imprint, which Imprint was a shorter film that was done for the Masters of Horror, which I think was on Showtime. That was the one that was actually banned, correct? It was banned. Now, here's the thing. It's a premium channel, so you can do pretty much anything. It speaks volumes that Mike did this, directed this film, and they said, nope, we're banning it from, I believe, Showtime. Yeah. We're yeah, banning it, it from Showtime. That, to me, is astounding, considering some of the stuff that I've seen on Showtime. If you want to borrow it, I have it on DVD. <laughs> well, probably not today. I, I unfortunately have uh, some things I have to take care of after I leave here. It but... is English language, and it's, it's a, I think that was his very first foray into English language film. And it is, it is good. Yeah. It is really interesting. So anyway, you know that this movie is going to be interesting when it starts off with a ritual suicide. Yes. Uh, that And that's one of the first things I wrote down in my notes was, that's one hell of a way to start a film. It gets your, it gets your uh, audience's attention like nothing else. And the thing about Takashi Miike is he does not stray away from the uncomfortable mm -mm. When, it, when it comes to things like that. You know, this guy is cutting his own guts out, you know, committing harakiri, and... It's the, the camera's not cutting away. It doesn't show like him cutting himself open, but it shows the pain that he's going through, and it's very focused on him and does not cut away. No. That's something that Mike does a lot. Yeah. Um, I do feel like overall, Thirteen Assassins is much more restrained for him as far as gore and brutality goes. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, some people will watch this film and be like, oh my god, it's gory and brutal. Right. But that's restrained for Takashi Miki. Yeah, so, uh, it, just with any film, the viewer takes their own uh, preconceptions into the film. So, if you're going into this film, 
and you're thinking it's going to be like a, a standard samurai movie that you've seen, which is they're they can be fairly sanitized considering the weaponry used in that kind of movie. Um, there's not really a lot of punches that were pulled, from my opinion, but I have like like you said, I've seen some of his other work, and it's a lot higher in, in graphic violence tone than this. Well, one of the things that really shocked me is one of Mike's M.O.s is arterial spray. Yes. You know, when someone gets stabbed or sliced, just the blood just squirts like it's being fired out of, like, a hose almost. And there was none of that in the 13 Assassins. But there was a moment when a bomb went off. Yeah. And a giant, like, wave of blood just Just flies flies over a building. building. Yeah, that that was for comic relief. Oddly enough. Um, yeah, that's actually something about this movie. There was a lot of moments of comic relief. Um, and it, it was really interesting, like, um, with the bombs that were used in... Um, I remember one of the one of the funny scenes that, that kind of made me chuckle a little bit was when they were testing the explosives that they were going to use. Uh, because essentially, uh, just to, to backtrack a little bit, um, essentially the... Um, the plot of the movie is that um, the half-brother of the Shogun is a very, very nasty person. Um, and Which they really drive home by showing him shoot a kid with arrows. Just for fun. Just for fun. Because it seems like it's his kind of thing to do. He truly is. And it's, it's laid out extremely early. He's just the person who's like, I can do this, so I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, there are no redeeming qualities about this guy. No, none at all. Um, which is funny because he, throughout the entire movie, only wears white. Yes. Which is, you know, like a, a very much, um, in the, in the cowboy tr- tradition, which pulls a lot from samurai movies, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, though always, the good guy always wears the white hat. Um, and the bad guy always wears the black hat. Yep. And, and in this movie, it was kind of the reverse in that, um... All of the samurai, all the of the assassins who were seeking justice, were all wearing darker tones, uh, mostly blacks and, and uh, camouflage type of material uh, for the for the era that they were portraying. And he was going around in pure white, which was a very interesting thing. And it also kind of showed how he felt assured in his position that nobody could touch him because if you mess up white clothing, well then the the impurities are going to show right off the bat so his choice of wardrobe is showing just how arrogant he actually is but the funny thing is it doesn't show his true insides because you see at the end of the film which is very satisfying for the viewer because this guy is such a piece of crap um, it's very satisfying because he is going to be stricken down you know he, he he starts dying and you would think, for such a hardened individual who's so brutal, that he would be able to take his death like a man. Right. And, and like a samurai. Really. And he's just lying on the ground going, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Yeah, exactly. He's like, yeah. I'm scared. I don't want to die. Right. Uh, and it's it's satisfying for the viewer because you're like, haha, you know, he doesn't get like an honorable death. He's actually scared. And yeah. he gets to feel what the people he killed felt. Yeah. And he did a lot a lot more horrible things to people than just kill them. Uh, one woman he mutilates. 
Yeah, he cut her arms and legs and tongue off. Yeah, and then just le- and then just left her there. She abandoned her. And that's there is another um, typical Takashi Miike moment where some filmmakers would not show it; they would just allude to it or talk about it. Yeah, he shows the woman missing the limbs, and it's very uncomfortable. It is. It's very grotesque, and, but that's. That is Mike. That is what Mike does. And, well, the reason that they they bring her out, it's not in the in the context of the film. It's not any kind of glorification of what this guy is doing. It's um, so that they can go to uh, Shimada Shinzimon and show him exactly what this guy has been up to. And um, Shinzimon doesn't need any conven- need need much convincing already because. Um, the villain of the film had actually killed his son and his his daughter-in-law. Yeah. Um, and he, he was really pretty racist when he was doing it, too, because he called them monkeys. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah, the guy was... I mean, he he's the embodiment of evil. Yeah. Truly. Yeah, and and, and it, just, it just drives home pretty much, you know... That the redeeming qualities of this character are not going to last, but it also it had some interesting things to say about Japanese society. In that, you know, the idea of harakiri as a form of social protest, mm-hmm. you know, that your life, like that your message is so strong that you're willing to to literally spill your guts out onto the ground for it, to get the point across, even though it. Even though you don't think it might make a difference, you're still willing to do it because it might incite some other people to do something, which is what happened in this case. Well, the thing that I really started thinking about while watching this film is the suicide culture created by samurai. Right. Because it's not just suicide as, you know, I didn't do something right or I'm shamed so I kill myself, but it's also suicide as in you're going into combat fully aware that you're most likely going to die or could easily die. But especially with the way the samurai act in in this film, they say, are you ready to die? Right. You know, at no point are they under any sort of illusion that they're going to live. You know, they are very well aware that they're going to die, and that's fine with them. One samurai survives, and he actually seems a little crestfallen that he made it through the battle. Right, because, yeah, it does seem like this kind of, like, what's wrong with me yeah. that I didn't die as well. Right. He, he he doesn't know what to do because his life, once he took on this role as, as bringing justice, um, once it was done, he didn't know how to cope with it. Um, and it was funny because some uh, along the lines, as they were traveling, they picked up this, this uh, really funny character who had been essentially put in a, a a cage up in a tree because he had been sleeping with his boss's wife. Yeah. Um, and he was a really funny character. And he's like, you samurai have the best brawls ever. And he's like going around with a, a, like a mace that he had made and a slingshot and just ripping them up. And they're like, this is not, this is not some kind of bar fight. This is an actual series. He's like, oh, well, you could, you could have fooled me. Uh, but he, he comes to them at the end and he's like, you, you're you're alive. What more do you want? Yeah. You know, and it was really interesting to see the peasants' reaction versus the samurai's reaction. 
Yeah, because with the samurai, it's all about honor, and and there's honor in, in death. Right. Um, either by your own hand or by the hands of, of others, because you're willing to die. Like, that's your job, is, is to die for your master. Die, or, die for in your this master. case, mainly for a cause. Right, right. And you know what was really interesting was that the samurai that were under the, the, the villain were actually very honorable people. Yes. Um, in fact, I kind of liked his right-hand man a lot because he knew that this guy was doing all sorts of horrible things. I believe his name was Hanbei? Yes, Hanbei, yeah. Um, he was willing to overlook those horrible things because it was honorable to be serving the Shogun's family. Right. It, it's this. It was a very strict... Uh, system of you serve your master no matter what. Right. You know, you don't agree with what your master's doing, doesn't matter. Right. You're there to serve and die for your master. And, and that's what happens with Hanbei. Yeah. But the other interesting thing is Hanbei's fighting, who was the final samurai? I don't remember. The, I think the guy was, that he fought, not the one that survived. Yeah, it was Shinzaman, I thought. Okay, yes, it was Shinzaman. He kills Hanbei. Yeah. And lops his head off. But but he shows respect to him as he does it. He shows so much respect to him, and it just made me think that I guarantee, and it, it's it really is shown in this film that these samurai, even though they kill each other and that's their job, they mm-hmm. are killing each other. They have great respect for each other at the same time. Yeah, which is a really weird thing to respect the person you're about to kill. Well, I, I think it just I think it just goes to show. How we have a difference in a, in, in a cultural opinion about what is the meaning of war. Right. You know, and what is the meaning of justice. Because the, everybody was willing to die for either their cause or for their, their clan, the cause or the clan. Um, but they respected each other even though they had a differing opinion. Right. Which is something that in our society we've lost. The ability to see that someone has a differing opinion, but we can actually address them with respect. I agree with that. You're right. You're totally right. Uh, and this is just... Man, where was I going to go with that one? I lost it. It's so early. I was just like... <laughs> I hijacked it. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You didn't. You didn't. It, um, well, I think where I was going with that is that the, it's, it's also part of the whole suicide culture thing, is that it... It really ingrains in these people that it's it's fine. Like you know, you're it's honorable for me to kill you because right. it's in combat. Right. So I would expect you to do the same to me. Mm-hmm. So we are you know we're kind of peers. We're equals. Yeah, we're definitely equals, and I respect you, and you respect me. But this is what we do. We're supposed to kill each other, right. and there's honor in that. Mm-hmm. It, it's just weird to see it from our perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, whenever you see another culture or uh, the way that another facet of society works because even within our own society there are subcultures and groups that we don't understand on a regular basis so as outsiders we're looking in on them and we can very easily pass judgment on what they're doing like uh, a great example of this would be when we were watching the bronies movie you 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 told me that your opinion of the movie changed drastically from what you were going to say before you sat down to watch it because you were expecting the Bronies documentary to completely mock that's part of the subculture. Right. But rather than being an outsider view on the inside, making fun of them, 
it was more of an insider's view saying, look, we're just trying to spread a message of equalness and tolerance and uh, essentially brotherly love, you know? And, and so because it had that positive message to it, it made you think not as a brony, well, kind of as a brony, but more as someone who is willing to understand their message and willing to listen to them more. Another uh, another example of this in filmmaking would be uh, a, a, an antithetical example of this would be the the documentary about Darkon, mm-hmm. which um, I have seen. Yes, I enjoy. I'm it, sorry, it, I enjoy it. No, it, it's a great documentary. But if you talked, uh, Darkon is a lo- local live action role playing society. Um, I have a lot of friends within Darkon. Um, I know a lot of people who really appreciate it. If you bring up that documentary to anybody who's in Darkon, not happy. They will get very angry about it. They typically don't want to have a conversation about it. Right. But if you ask them to, then they will. Um, and it is it's interesting. Yeah. I mean it, it's truly a situation where the filmmaker made a story that they wanted to make, not right. the story that was there. Right. Right. And so it just like that you know, we could make a movie if you and I sat down and we made a samurai movie mm-hmm. or a samurai story. It would, I believe, be inherently wrong in a lot of ways because we're looking at it from an outsider's perspective and we're not trying to make a story that would be true and authentic. We're trying to say, oh, this would be cool, so we're going to put the Bushido culture in outer space. Right. You know, now sometimes that can work because Star Wars was a re- essentially a remake of Hidden Fortress, you know, which is a, a, a samurai movie following around two peasants who are getting shot at while while all the samurai are fighting. Essentially, R2D2 and C3PO are analogs of those characters in Star Wars. But who shot first, Han or Greedo? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't want you to get into that. Because I, <laughs> I know you'd have like an hour just to say about that, probably. No, not really. I mean, George <laughs> Lucas can could mess with the movies all, as much as he wanted until he gave them away to Disney. So, yeah, he's pretty sure. much done with it. Yeah. Finally. One of the things I did want to say about 13 Assassins is, for me, what it looked like at its heart is a movie about either... Being an underling, mm-hmm. being a servant, or being an agent of change. Mm-hmm. Which side are you going to take? And there are good people on both sides of that. Yeah. Well, the thing is that any side of the argument have people who are legitimately good people. Who are trying trying to be, like you said, an agent of change. Or trying to serve in, in as best a way that they know how. Um, but a lot of times we just overlook those people because we want to focus on the big picture issue of this person is right and this person is wrong. Um, not to drive too close of a comparison to it, but the American Civil War had a lot of people who thought that, didn't necessarily think that slavery was right, but thought that the idea of states' rights, the, the states' rights to be and more control of their local government was something worth fighting for. Right. Um, so the the American Civil War is a, a really good example of there were good people on both sides, but they had very different opinions of what was what was good for the country. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, this film, I thought, had 
you know, it had a typical thing that you see in a lot of um, warring type films. Not just samurai films, but anything involved with war. You have a lot of extras who you just know are going to get cut down. And when, you know, you and I talked about this before we started the podcast. There was like a 40 minute fight scene at the end. Yes. Which got a little bit long. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that it was there for kind of like the epicness of it. And I mean, that's probably how those wars were. Right. Well, to a certain extent, I don't think it was 13 people against 200. And that's kind of where I was going with this is it, it's very implausible. Yes. Um, but it is a story. Yeah. Well, it kind of it, it reminded me of the story of um, the, the Battle of Thermopylae. You know, where the, the Spartans are going against the Persians, there's only 300 of them and thousands of the Persians, yet because they got them into this narrow, this narrow, uh, basically a canyon, they were, the 300 were able to hold it long enough for the rest of the army to, to, to escape to safety. Same thing happened with Spartacus. Right. The actual Spartacus. It's right. not just the TV show people. There was an actual Spartacus. He went to the mountains, and they were able to fight from the mountains because the access points were so limited that they could choke off the enemy. Um, there is a lot to be said for the advantage of geography, using yes. geography properly, uh, and that is done in 13 Assassins. It's not necessarily the geography, the natural geography right. that they use, but they use a town, and they use the structures within the town to create, you know, choke off points and to get, you know, an elevated advantage to be able to shoot arrows at people when they only have swords so they can't quite get to them. Right. I love I loved that part of the movie where one of the samurai went to the town and they're like, We have this order that we're going to we need to use your town uh, for for this specific purpose. And they don't really tell them what it is. Um <laughs> but the the mayor of the town is like, um, we don't want to like not to comply with orders, but the, uh, the 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 plausibility of this is going to be tough. And then they just slide over this huge box of money. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and they're like, is this not enough? And they're like, well, how's this for a down payment? Down payment. Yeah. And and the guy That's... turns around. Uh, he stands up to look into the box, and then he falls over because he is just like. It, that was a great funny moment in the movie. It was, and you you were talking a little bit earlier about the comedic moments. Yes, we we did get a little derailed on that, but I believe the very first comedic moment was one you were talking about where they're testing explosives. Yes, and these guys set up, set it up. They light the the wick, and then they run and they get behind, you know, cover, right. and they're covering their ears. And they're just sitting there for a long time. It's and, a good 30 seconds. Yeah, and then it's kind of like, uh, okay, that didn't work. So they get up and they look over, and pretty much as soon as they look over, the bomb explosion. goes off. It's pretty great. That was the first comedic moment, but uh, also the comedic moments of the non-samurai that ends up becoming the 13th assassin. Right, be- because they, they make him an honorary member of the group. Well, because they were expecting, what, 70 men to fight, and then it's like 240 or something like it's that? Like, yeah, it's over 200. Yeah, over 200. And so they're like, oh, it, we'd like all we can get. Hey, this guy's here, and he said he'll, he'll fight. He can be our 13th assassin. And he was great because um, like, they're, he, he at first he's like, well, get me out of the cage and I'll, and I'll be a guide for you. 
Right. And so they're like, okay, fine. They cut him down. And then he spends, like, most of his time running after rabbits, you know, trying to get dinner. And they're like, we've got serious business. Leave the rabbit behind. The thing is, nobody sees it coming with him that right. he's actually a skilled fighter. He says he is, but nobody believes him because right. his attitude is not that of a samurai. No. He's not a serious, honorable-seeming person He's just this guy who's like, whatever, man. You know, like, I'm just going to live my life. I don't care. Whatever. But he backs it up. When, yeah, he, he, when he says that he can fight, he can fight. He was pretty darn good with that mace and the sling that he, he was using. He wrecks house. Yeah. He really does. He, literally. He yeah. threw, threw a rock through a wall at one point. Um, but another thing that I liked about that character um, was the detail of his, of his makeup. Because the actor had this prosthetic over part of his face that looked like a severe burn had happened to him. Yeah. Um, so just by looking at the character, you could tell that he had this rich backstory with a lot of really interesting elements that they didn't really draw into the story at all. But it would have been interesting to see a movie all about this guy and like all the crazy stuff that he did before he even met up with the 13 Assassins. He was my favorite character yeah. in the film. And it's because he was such a badass and that was such a big surprise. Yeah. But also because he brought a, a lot of, like, nice comedic moments to it. Because it's a very serious film and it's just nice to have, like, a few moments of levity to just kind of, like, relieve you a little bit. Right. Well, I mean, there, there's got to be tension in release. And there's a lot of tension in this movie. A lot. Because um, you're seeing some horrible things with... with you know, children being shot full of arrows and um, and women who have been mutilated and everything. So you go from that to this guy who's like, hey, look, I got a rabbit for dinner. <laughs> and they're like, we've got serious business. But what could be more serious than roast rabbit? This is fantastic. Uh, it, it's just, he, he offered a lot to the movie that I think if they didn't have that kind of character would have really made the movie just kind of bogged down. Yeah, and he was the definite opposite of a samurai. You yes. know, he was a person kind of just living his life moment to moment and not looking at any larger picture or any... He doesn't have any missions in life. Right. You know, he's just kind of like going with the flow, which samurais definitely did not do. You know, they had a whole structure. They had goals that they had to meet in their life. You know, it was interesting, but... He also had no problem with throwing himself into danger. Right. Just like a samurai. Right. Even though he didn't have any of the end goals of the samurai in the beginning, he was just living in the moment. Yep. You know, and, and he just he just went with the logical um, action for where he was in his life and just kind of rolled with the punches. Yeah. And when he was named as the 13th Assassin, I was kind of like, okay, there it is. There we go. Because everybody knows going in, it's called 13 Assassins, so you know people are just kind of like, uh, one, two, three, uh, oh, that's 12, where's 13? Where's number 13? And everyone's just kind of like waiting for that moment when 13 happens. And I bet most people, well, maybe not most, but some people probably did not think that the non-samurai would end up becoming the 13th Assassin. I think, I think most people... At least Western viewers who aren't familiar with the Bushido Code of Honor would have thought Hanbi would have defected at yeah. the last moment. I kind of had a feeling that that might happen in the film. Yeah. And it kind of sucks that it didn't because he was such a good 
guy. I I kind of really would have liked to see him defect. Yeah. Just whoop some ass, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But then but then he wouldn't have even been able to die honorably. That's true. Which is very important to the culture. So So I think that's um something that is at least a point in Hanvi's favor there. Yeah. From the context of the culture. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about was Mike's direction. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind shifting from story to technical stuff That's for fine. a little bit. Um, because the way that the film was shot, they used a lot of natural lighting. Uh, and the natural lighting that they used were flames and candles and oil lamps and things like that. So there was a lot of flickering to on the film and everything that gave it a really visceral feel. Um, I honestly felt like the way that it shot was a more historical perspective on the way that filmmaking would have been done than it would. It didn't look like a 2010 film to me. It looked like something that was from 1974. Right. It did look significantly older. Yeah. I agree with that. There Uh, was, there was this overall look and sheen about it. Um, and, and that probably was some lens filters that were used, um, to, to give it that kind of air. They might have actually, um, they might have gone back to old stock. Like, they might have got, taken an antiquated film stock and shot on that rather That's than a modern film, you know, to get the same kind of look. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, well, one thing I'll say about Takashi Miike is he is kind of lazy at, in his directing. Yeah. Um, Obviously, he works a lot. He directs a lot. So he is kind of like a workaholic. But when he's actually directing the scenes, he is a little bit lazy in the fact that he's even said that it, he just kind of goes with the flow. Right. Or it's kind of like however he feels in any given day, it's going to dictate what he does with a scene. Right. So he, he really is like, this day might be different than the next day, and I'm just going to direct it differently. and. You know, like, it, that's a little bit of, like, a lazy way to do it, to just go with the flow, but he also works hard. So I think having that attitude, that outlook, speaks to the skill that he has that the film comes out really well. Yes. Well, and also, I think I think that when you're working that much and you want to, um, if you want to keep your sanity about it, you can't approach every day like you're going to do it exactly the same way. Because there's going, to, there's got to be a give and take to it, right? Um, it, like, um, what's his name? Sodenberg um, recently said that he was retiring from directing, be and and being a producer and everything, f- retiring from filmmaking because he was so tired of doing the same thing day in and day out, like going in and and doing location shoots and then going in and doing. You know, testing actors and screen tests and and all the the minutia that goes into directing a film. He essentially said, "I'm tired of this. I want to be done." So he's he's announced that effectively um, after what behind the candelabra, the one he did about um, uh, Liberace, he said he was done. He's like, "Yeah, done, finished." Um, and he he then said he was going to to focus on painting for a while. So if you don't have some way to to keep variety in what you do, you're going to to become tired of it, even if it's something you love. Yeah, and I think that's something that every person experiences because when you are doing the same thing over and over and over without any sort of variation, 
it just gets mundane. There's no more excitement to it. When you start doing it, it's fun and exciting because it's something you like doing. Yeah, exactly. Like I'll make I'll make an example. You know, the podcasts that that I do. You know, I do two of them with you, Jordan, and one I I don't. But all the podcasts that I do, when I started all of them, I was very excited. I'm like, I was a go-getter. I'm like, we're going to do this. It's going to be great. You know, I don't dislike them now. Right. But they've become more normal to me. Yeah. So it there are some days where I have to try hard to hype myself up before yeah. I do an episode of something. Yeah. Because it's not as automatic as it used to be that, like, this is new and fun and exciting. It's been going on for a while, so it's kind of like... Every now and then I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not feeling it today, but I got to jazz myself up, up sometimes. And, you know, the, the crazy thing is I have that issue quite a bit um, because a lot of what um, I do for the, the gaming podcast we do requires a lot of extra thought on my part before we even get to the table. Right. Um, so it's like something that's constantly on my mind and I'm... I, I know that we're going to be recording another session of that this weekend, and I'm already dreading it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun it. once we get to the table and yeah. we see all of our friends there. Yeah. But it's it's at the same time, right now, I'm like, I can't believe that we're doing this. <laughs> because not only, just to, you know, to, to give a little insight, um, I, just, I just started a relationship. I work full time. I'm very active in a lot of social functions. And I do this. You know, I am split so many different ways a lot of the time. I don't even know what what's up and what's down. And my sleep schedule really suffers from it for a lot of time. Yes, it does. Um, but anyway, uh, enough of, about that. But once we get here and once we start talking about the movies, it changes. We, we, we just know. get excited and, and, uh, and it really takes on a life of its own. Certainly does. I think you wanted, you know, we were talking about Mike's directing, but I think you also wanted to talk a little bit about the landscape. Landscape. Oh my goodness. This movie was gorgeous in terms of landscape. It was so luscious to look at. Um, they did a great job they scouting did, locations. Oh my gosh. And, and, and the great thing was that, you know, how we were talking about the comedy allowing it to breathe from the seriousness of it. The landscape allowed it to breathe as well because there were a lot of really gorgeous um, just shots of, of people walking in the distance. Like a, a, a long shot of people just walking through the hills of Japan. Mm -hmm. And it was so gorgeous to look at uh, because there was always some kind of, excuse me, running water. Or there was some kind of, um, like, element of, like, birds or something that just looked, made it look like um, one of the, the um, wall hangings that you always think of when, when you immediately think of Japanese art, you know, all those gorgeous watercolors that they did um, back around the same time the movie portrayed. Um, that's something that, to me... Mike did a great job of capturing capturing that essence, which is honestly a, a, a important part of that era of Japanese history. Well, it's also important within the film because you know we talk about the moments of levity that are good as breaks. Yeah. Now, when you have like a long shot of a nice landscape, that's kind of a harmonious moment for you to kind of take a break from the brutality of yes. what's actually going on and just kind of be like, "Oh, isn't that a gorgeous landscape?" You know, that's it's a serene moment allows the viewer to kind of rest a little bit to prepare for the tension to come 
And I don't know, it, it might just be me, but I love the sound of running water. Like lightly, oh, like a stream or something like that. It's extremely calming. And, you know, my cat, we spoil her, she has a running water fountain. And it's constantly making that noise. And at first I was like, this could get annoying, but now I, I enjoy it. And my wife had said, you know, I feel like it's kind of calming, actually. You know, honestly, if I, if I could build my dream house... Um, first off, it'd be a, an earth ship, so it'd be like half buried into the ground. All right. Um, but I, I would have like this water feature in the living room as like the prominent part of it, just like maybe some some rocks out of the wall, and then just having water just continuously running down over that. That's what my in my dream house. That's what my um, shower would be like. Yeah, would be like that. Like it would it would be like a waterfall type. Yeah. Thing. Cause, that would be so nice. Oh yeah, because the, because just the white noise of water running mm-hmm. does something to, in my mind that just calms me down like nothing else. Yep. But I mean that that to me was something that was really great was because even though you didn't get to see humanity interacting in a harmonious way with nature in the film, the film uh, Mike did take the time to show how harmonious nature could be even though they had such pressing need at the time well and it's an interesting it's interesting when you think about it because you look at that nice serene beautiful landscape and then you know that inside of that there's this gruesome brutal terrible war waging yeah and it's just you know an interesting dichotomy right well i mean a lot of times pretty packages can hide ugly things this is true. Um, you can you can put a scorpion in a box and put a bow on it. It looks really nice. It looks really nice. Ow, it stung me. <laughs> uh, yes. There are a few other things that I had written down in my notes that I wanted to um, to point out. Go ahead. But actually, first, I, I think I told you I was going to confess something about this film to you. Yes. Um, I watched it with dubbed. English dubs on. Oh, did you? Um, and I feel... I felt terrible about doing it, but the reason that I did it were twofold. One, I was tired, um, so all the reading was a little rough. I started watching it with subtitles, and then I was just like, I really can't. And two, it's hard to take notes and read read at the same time and not miss something. So I was like, I'm going to dub it. So for that reason, I feel like I may have shortchanged the actors. Yes. Um, so I apologize, uh, and I needed to confess that because I felt bad about it. But go, going forward, one of the great quotes for me that's very early on in the film is, he who values his life dies. Yes. Basically saying that, and th- this was, I think Shinzaman had said that, or one of his crew, that was basically like, look, if you have a problem with dying, you're gonna. Yeah. You know, you, you'll basically... By having a fear of it, you'll will it into existence. And that was an interesting aspect of that film that was kind of like, look, if you have no qualms with, with dying, right? most likely you're going to do better. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a, a maxim that he who wants to keep his life will lose it, and those who give their life away will keep it. You know, and, and that's that's an interesting thing to to conjoin with the um, the code of the samurai, with the honor. Yeah. I'm giving my life away for somebody else, but that gives it meaning. Yeah. You know, 
Um, but it, it's also it's very interesting. Um, our favorite comic relief character. I wish I had written down his name because he was such a good character. We deserve to mention his name, or he deserves his name being mentioned, but I didn't. Um, but he he had this quote at the very end um, when he's talking to the last one who lives. Being a samurai is truly a burden. Do what you want with your life. Yeah. You know, and yeah, yeah. yeah that, that seems like something that um, that this last samurai couldn't wrap his head around was don't let what you're called to be a burden in your life. Right. But let it be something that gives you joy and meaning and fulfillment. You know, so, um, yes, I might work as an office drone, but that's not who I am. Right. You know. Exactly. You you have things outside of that. Your relationship, your podcasts. Yeah. You know, friendships, things like that. I agree with that. And another, another, another great quote, um, just to throw this out here. Uh, was advice that Shinzaman gave to his nephew, who was one of the samurai who went with him. Um, he's, they, were, they were talking about um, his relationship with his wife because he had, he had this, um, he had just married. But and, he was the one that survived. It was Shinzaman's um, nephew. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And, um, she, and he was actually, he spent a lot of time because he didn't know how to handle his new relationship. It seemed like an arranged marriage. Yeah. Um, he spent a lot of his time gambling, you know. And which, by the way, they talked about gambling a lot. Like, that came up numerous times. That was a little annoying to me. I felt like it was just, like, taking it a little too far. That's a small thing, but it's just kind of annoying. It, it, I didn't really notice it as much, but I watched it subbed, not dubbed. Oh, so, yeah. so, so yeah. that might have been part of it. But, <laughs> yeah. he, but um, Shinzaman gives him this great advice. Be yourself. Don't overdo it. Um, and, you know... That's the same kind of advice as, you know, being a samurai is truly a burden. Just yeah. be yourself, you know. Correct. So even though Shinzaman was in the in the code, he had found a way to live his life and not to overdo it um, and to find fulfillment in what he was doing. Uh, so that was that was a really interesting thing that um, you you can let who you are become a burden. Or you can express yourself truly through it and let it become a joy. And I have another quote that I thought was interesting, and that was from Naratsugu, mm -hmm. the bad guy. He said, you must choose the foolish path. It's more fun that way. Yes, yes. He deliberately rode into that trap knowing it was a trap because he thought he was going to get out alive. Which shows his arrogance, yeah. obviously. But in the end, he, he ends up being killed. Which was a really funny thing because he was afraid of dying, but then he also said to Shinzaman, you know, thank you because this has been the most fun I've ever had in my life, basically. And then Shinzaman says, you're welcome, and cuts his head off. That was funny. Like, yeah. I mean, people would say that's not funny, that's screwed up, but it was kind of funny, I have to be honest. You know, he's like, you're welcome, and chops his head off. Yeah. Well, probably, you know, saying saying that kind of puts it in, in perspective that how angry he was at the injustice that this guy was doing. Mm -hmm. Because even as this guy was dying, yes, he was saying, I don't want to die. But he's not repenting or he's not turning away from, you know, the stuff that he did. Right. So he's still, he's still going, hey, even though I lived this messed up life, it's been worth it in the end because this has been a, a great load of fun. You know, and that's, 
that shows such a wanton, wanton waste of life because he just had over 200 men killed to trying to protect him. And he's like, yeah, yeah, they're all dead, and I'm dying, but it was worth it. Just for the thrill. Just for the thrill of it. Yeah, because that's the kind of person he was. He was just living for thrills. Right. And Which the the um, non-samurai guy who joined the assassins, he was also just kind of living for thrills, too. Yeah, but he wasn't... But he wasn't a, <laughs> an awful person. All he was doing was sleeping with his boss's wife and right. killing rabbits. I mean... I mean, still not great still stuff. Still not, but... not great stuff. Well, especially for the rabbits, but... Yeah. But, I mean, I I can't imagine Shinzaman's frustration with this because, you know, he's like, well, fine, if you want to really get the, the thrill out of your life, I'm just going to cut your head off. Yep. You know, so I saw that. I could see the humor in it, but I also saw it as a very, a very frustrating moment at the end of the movie where Shinzaman isn't getting what he thinks would be justice. Yeah. You know. There are a few other things that I really wanted to point out fast because we have we're running low on time. Um, one thing, the moment where they're interviewing potential assassins, uh, and the really young guy, um, one of the guys is is immediately like, "No, he's too young." But the, I think Shinzaman says that no, he doesn't believe he's necessarily too young because you can't base it on someone's age. Like, you you can't tell devotion based on someone's age, and that's what the samurai is about, right. is about devotion. And so I think this was also a really good point, just about ageism, you know, saying that you can look at someone young or old and just put a label on them based on that and say, well, they're not good at this or they're good at that, right. and that's not necessarily going to be true. And the, the crazy thing is our culture values people who are between the ages of 15 and 35. Yeah. You know, and then anybody over that age is irrelevant, and everyone under that age is just irrelevant. Yeah, Yeah, I know, I know. And that, I was thinking about that too, because that brought it up from from the uh, film. So I thought that was interesting. One of the other things I wrote down is choreography with swords has got to be dangerous. And are, do they have, like, blunt swords that they do oh, fight yeah. with? I would assume. I would assume, like... Oh, but it's still dangerous. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, you're still waving around, what, 15 pounds of metal? You're, if you get hit with that thing, you're going you're gonna to leave a bruise. Yeah, at least. So that was another thought that went through my mind as I was, I was watching this film. Um, the odds seem pretty much insurmountable, you know, from the get-go. It really, the film did a good job of... You know, creating this like impending doom feeling, like ah, oh, it's thirteen assassins. Like you expect that they're not going to make it, but you start feeling like they might because the big fight goes so well for them for so long, yeah. And then it starts to break down. Yeah, Doom Doomtown was amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, and all the traps and everything yeah. they laid out yeah. added a lot of fun elements for the viewer. Yeah, I love the sliding walls. Yes, the sliding walls were great to, to create choke points. Yeah. The flaming bowls were a little over the top for me. <laughs> that was comedy right there. Yeah, but I, I would have rather seen the movie without it. Yeah, I... It was I, a little too much. Well, especially because you could tell that those were CGI. Oh, yeah. You could really tell those it, were It CGI. was not good CG. No. It the, was, the practical effects there kind of got, got in the way of good storytelling. Yeah, certainly did. Um, another thing that I wanted to point out was the moment they had the um, parchment from the woman who had lost her limbs. Yes. Oh. And she had written Total Massacre on it. 
And they had Shizumon had that with him. And when they confront the um, uh, when they confront Naratsugu and his clan, and they are look like you know the thirteen assassins have the upper hand, he just unfurls the parchment that says Total, Total Massacre. Massacre. And I thought that was such a like a badass moment to be like, oh man, now you're getting it. Yeah. So I really like that. I wanted to make sure that I pointed that one out. Um, another thing is we talk about shaky cam in films a lot and shaky cam being good or bad. And right. usually we're talking about it in the bad sense that the, it was shaky cam here and it was too much or it wasn't appropriate. These big wars, like in 13 Assassins, that is when you use shaky cam. And they used it very well there. Exactly. And yes. that was my point. If anybody out there has been listening to when we're talking about shaky cam and you're like, well, when is shaky cam appropriate... 13 Assassins. And you know what? The thing is that it does such a good job of portraying what is going on in the battle. And it also hides some of the special, like the choreography um, very well. But it's moving around, but you don't notice it because you're so involved in what's happening on screen that the shaky cam doesn't detract from it. And it's realistic to what would be going on. It's like you're inside of the chaos of right. what's going on. That's why it's appropriate. If you're not noticing it, it's done really well. That's right. And that's, that's, right. that's the point I wanted to make on that. And the final thing that I wanted to point out about this is I really, really, really liked after the war was over showing all the dead assassins. Yes. I thought it was a powerful moment, and I thought it was just a really good yeah. part of the film. Yeah, and with Shinzaman's nephew just walking through there, just trying to process all that has happened. It was like giving the moments to the heroes. Yeah. It was giving respect. Yeah, exactly. It was giving respect. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, we don't do that enough. Um, a lot of times movies end when they end. Um, and sometimes they do a good job of, of showing what's going on. But other times they just don't. You know, And this one kind of gave a, a real sense of closure to the actual event. And showed that there can be some hope. Even though all these people died, we have someone who walked away and has taken something from it. And it was, they had a postscript to it yeah. saying that not long after that happened, uh, the feudal system was abolished. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we're, we're pretty much out of time. Um, we had a lot to say about this one. We did. Yeah. I, I was, when I was watching it, I was wondering if we'd be able to get enough out of it. Um, because samurai films are a little more straightforward. They are straightforward, but they're fun. And this yeah. one was a good movie. Let's go ahead and, and uh, do final assessments. Um, Would you like to take the lead? Sure, I'll go ahead. Um, again, I love the I love the landscapes. I love the cinematography of this movie. Um, we didn't mention it a lot, but the soundtrack was very appropriate. Um, I agree. It was... Uh, there, there were long stretches when it was just letting natural sound control the environment um, and that works really well um, I love the lighting and I love how old the movie looked I thought the acting was really good um, especially for the characters that we highlighted um, overall is it a movie that I would go back to again and again I definitely think it's worth watching at least one more time to pick up subtleties that I might have missed the first time but overall I think it's a it's a good it's a good movie if you're already familiar with the samurai genre, um, and 
as a remake and as some something that is um, fairly straightforward, I would give it a three star rating. Okay. Um, like I said before, little cookie cutter for me, a kind of a typical samurai film, but it did have enough small little touches to it to make it a little bit different, um, to make it interesting. Uh, like you said, the, the choreography was, was well done. The landscapes were outstanding. I tried to key in on the acting, but I was listening to it with English dubs. So I was trying to look at like body language and stuff like right. that. Um, from what I could tell from that, I think it was well done. Um, my apologies for watching it dubbed. I usually feel bad when I do that. I feel like I shouldn't, but it was a thing of convenience at this point. No, no, no. Don't don't worry about it. Like you said, the music was very good for it. They had a lot of interesting... Well, Mike had a lot of interesting choices in there. There was one moment when they had the um, all the assassins talked about what they were going to do, and they are just about to head out, and you see all of a sudden it starts downpouring. So cues like that in the film... And they had a few of them. I really like that show Smart Directing. And Mike Shirley is a smart director. He had some of his typical grotesque calling cards in the film, mm -hmm. but he also really restrained himself for what he typically does. So as to, I don't know if it was his intention, but it what it accomplishes is being a little more accessible to a larger audience. Yes. Overall, this was an enjoyable samurai film. It wasn't too interesting, in my opinion, because it is uh, kind of typical. Right. Um, but I, I did enjoy watching it once, and I could maybe watch it maybe one more time, like you were saying. So I also will give it three stars. Giving it an overall of three stars for the podcast. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well... That was 13 Assassins. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, go ahead and give us feedback if you enjoyed the movie or if you think we totally missed something, please let us know. We're, we're getting a lot of great feedback and we'll touch a bit more on that in some future episodes. Uh, but right now we're pretty much out of time. So, And somebody just send in a request for Ichi the Killer, please. Because if you do, then we will do it. I'm, I'm trying to like hold off. I just need to know that there's someone out there who will enjoy a brutal movie like that because I don't want to pick it myself and force that on people so well, I will leave it to the audience considering some of the audience suggestions we do have some fairly hyper violent movies on there so okay. we, we might actually have Ichi the Killer I can't remember from the spreadsheet if we do or not we'll check it so we'll, we'll go ahead and see what we got alright well thank you very much for listening to this episode you've been listening to Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night our theme music was provided by Sweet Wave Audio to find more royalty free music for your own projects check out sweetwaveaudio.co.uk and special thanks to Ariana Ramos for her graphic design savvy helping us with our album art visit our website at mostexcellentmovienight.com to listen to other episodes give us your opinion and share with us other movies you'd like to have reviewed you can also contact us through our email address mostexcellentmovienight at gmail.com we would love to read them on the air also if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes we would be your friends for life for sure that's all for now thanks for listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night where movies are most excellent this has been a Nerd Circle podcast production 